Would you please open your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. We are taking a one-week break from our study of the book of Romans in order to really celebrate and remember one of the most monumental events in church history. It occurred this weekend, 498 years ago. On October 31, 1517, it was that day that the Protestant Reformation was officially launched. And I believe that as a church family today, almost 500 years later, we need to understand events like this in church history. But there are just certain elements and certain events that have occurred in the last 2,000 years that we as a church need to understand. Uh, Maybe you're not a student of church history. Maybe you don't enjoy church history. That's okay. But you have to understand this. You must understand what took place in the Protestant Reformation because our lives are different today because of it, and you need to know why. To be sure, the Protestant Reformation was not an event that can just be isolated to a single date or single individual. This was an all-encompassing event. It was much broader than just one date on a calendar and one man This is an event that spanned two centuries, from the early 1500s well into the 1600s. It spawned numerous other privileges and incredible changes politically, socially, educationally, and economically. It began in Germany, and it spread to nearby Switzerland and France, eventually crossing the English Channel to Britain and Scotland eventually crossing the ocean to the new world, this became nothing short of a worldwide reformation. It was started by a man by the name of Martin Luther, but it certainly involved many more than just him. There were many precursors to the reformation, men like John Wycliffe, who translated the scriptures into English, and men like John Huss, who was a pastor in the Czech Republic, who was martyred for his faith for the very seeds that launched the reformation. It included other men like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin and Thomas Cranmer and John Knox, John Bunyan and Lady Jane Grey and Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. These and a host of others were used mightily by the Lord to bring in incredible changes that we benefit from still today. Although it brought in great changes educationally and politically and socioeconomically, the most obvious changes for this event came in the life of the church. It brought about religious changes, some incredible changes within the life of the church. You need to understand that before the Protestant Reformation, there was no such thing as church membership. There was no such thing as corporate singing, corporate worship. The Word of God was not preached. The Bible was not read in the gatherings of the churches. All the things that we love and take for granted today that take place within our church, many of those things did not take place prior to the Reformation. And things were that way for 600 years in the Dark Ages. The Reformers came along, though, and said that the Word of God should be written in the language of the common people and read in the public assembly of the church so the people can understand it. And they came along and they said that the Word of God should be preached 
Not the celebration of the Mass. That shouldn't be the focus of the church gathered. The the focus of the church gathered should be the proclamation of the Word of God. And the architecture in the church has changed as a result of the the Reformation. Instead of the (coughs) altar being the center front piece of furniture in a church, it now became the pulpit. The Protestant reformers came along and said that the church should be singing They should be worshiping together. They should be speaking the truth to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so it was the Reformers who brought back corporate worship. In fact, John Huss, a man I just mentioned, was martyred partly because of that. He went to his death defending the importance of congregational worship. The Reformers also brought in a great change in believing that every member of the church, every participant in the body of Christ was a minister. It wasn't just related to the the priests. It wasn't just something that the priests were called to do. This was the ministry of of every believer within the church. And so the the chief effects of the Reformation were undoubtedly religious. Yet the greatest effect of the Reformation was the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Front and center, the, the singular most important consequence of the Reformation, what is the re- that it recovered the gospel and answered correctly the question, what must I do to be saved? That's a pretty important question. And you better get that question right because your eternity hangs in the balance. Agree? It's a crucial issue. And so the Protestant reformers came along, and through the study of the Word of God, they began to realize that what the church stood for at that time in church history, what the the state church was defending and preaching was not the true gospel. It was a gospel mired in superstition. It was a gospel mired in corruption and legalism. And the teachings of Rome brought about nothing other than legalism and works righteousness, And they were saying that in order to be saved, you must believe in the Mass. You must go through Mary. You must go through a priest. You must go through a bishop and the church and the pope and the church traditions. And you must engage in all the sacraments like confession and penance and indulgences and last rites. And so it was Scripture plus something. It was Scripture plus tradition. It was Scripture plus the pope. It was Scripture plus human effort and Scripture plus Mary and Scripture plus all of these other articles that they had obscured the true gospel with. You see, Rome believed in works righteousness. Not in the righteousness of Christ imputed to one's account, but works righteousness. They didn't deny Jesus, and they didn't deny faith, and they didn't deny grace, but they said that all of those things must be accompanied by works, which then were infused with the righteousness of God, which then ultimately led to your salvation. It was cooperation, you and God kind of working together to bring about your salvation. And that's what the teachings of Rome stood for. The reformers came along and they said, no, this has obscured the true gospel. This is sacramentalism. There's all this kind of scaffolding and hierarchy surrounding the true gospel. And what they did in the recovery of the scripture and the recovery of the gospel was to tear down all of that that obscured the true gospel of Jesus Christ and they restored to the church the sound teaching of God's word, particularly in the area of the gospel and salvation. And what emerged from that incredible event 500 years ago were five watchwords, five phrases, five really 
profound statements that really crystallized and made clear the preaching and the teaching that the Reformers came to conviction on from the study of God's Word. We're going to put a slide up here just in case you've forgotten what those five sole are, five solas of the Reformation. And these are really the, the, the key phrases that define the teaching of the Reformers as they recovered the authority of Scripture. We've been in our midst of a study of these for the last few years. If you've been with us the last couple of years, you know that we've done the first two. We're going to do a third today, and then we'll do two more in the next couple of years. So you're committed. You are in this for the long haul, all right? So if you want the rest of the story, you've got to come back next year and the year after. So we have, we have studied already sola scriptura, the conviction that salvation is by the authority of the Scriptures alone. And we have already studied Solus Christus, that it is in Christ alone. This morning we're going to deal with the issue of sola fide, that it is through faith alone. Next year we'll deal with the issue of salvation by grace alone, which is sola gratia. And then two years from this fall in 2017, in the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, we will deal with the last one, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Just a brief review. Sola Scriptura basically says that salvation and the authority of the gospel lies in the Scripture alone. It is not found in church councils. It is not found in church traditions. It is not found in the sacraments or the Pope or or any other hierarchical system that can be erected around the gospel. It is none of that. The, The Reformers came along and they said, no, it is Scripture alone. It is the Word of God alone that informs us about how God and man can be reconciled in the true gospel. This was the great rediscovery of the authority of Scripture and the part of the the Reformers. And they made every effort to ground their theology and to ground the church practice and to ground the gospel back into the authority of the Word of God. That is sola scriptura. Last year we talked about solus Christus which is the conviction that it is in Christ alone that salvation is found. It is in Him alone. It's not found in works. It's not found in your church attendance, your baptism, your marriage. It's not found in the practice of last rites or indulgences or Mary or the treasury of merit or sacraments or purgatory or whatever other things and works can be added to the the true gospel. And the, the Reformers recognize the importance of keeping the focus on Christ. Christ and Him alone. It is solus Christus in which our salvation is truly found. It is in His work, His atonement, His sacrifice, His death, His life, His blood, His righteousness, and that and that alone is what saves us. This morning, I would like to deal with the third sola, and it is salvation is through faith alone. It's through faith alone, that salvation is, is found only in faith alone by justification, and that is sola fide. It is through faith alone that a sinner is justified by God and declared righteous. And so this item of the Reformation is really focusing in on justification by faith alone. That is the heartbeat of the Reformation. That is really the, the centerpiece of the gospel. It's really what, if you boil the Reformation down to anything, it is this, that the righteousness of Jesus Christ 
when you come to faith in Christ, is credited to your account so that you can stand before God holy and righteous, not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of a righteousness that is credited to you from one who did live righteously and did live perfectly. And friends, that is the heart of the gospel. That is the heart of the Reformation. And if you get that, if you can comprehend justification by faith alone, you understand the gospel and you understand the heartbeat of the Reformation. So what I'd like to do today is I would like to walk you through a a brief introduction to sola fide. And I feel like in order to do that, you really need to understand Martin Luther. And so I would like to give you a a brief biography of Martin Luther so you can understand him kind of as an illustration of of what took place in his heart to bring him to the point of really launching the Reformation that resulted in the rediscovery of this marvelous doctrine. So here's a brief introduction to this man. He was born in November 10, 1483, in Eisleben, Germany, in Saxony. It's a part of northwest Germany. He was born there to Hans and Margaret Luther. They were known uh, in their community and in their village as very hardworking individuals. Margaret, his mother, was known within the village of being a a diligent, ambitious woman. And Hans, his father, was a a coppersmith, a, a man who worked the copper mines. And he was also a very ambitious man. And he was determined to see his oldest son, Martin, become a lawyer. That's what he wanted for his son. He felt like that would be a a good career and a a good way to earn a living and be prestigious, and so that was very important. And so he sent Luther to a number of Latin schools in his primary days to, to get an education that would facilitate him becoming a lawyer. At age 19, he entered the University of Erfurt, and uh, received a master's degree there four years later in the year 1505. It was in that same year, 1505, that he also entered law school to honor his father and uh, do what his father wished him to do. At the very same university, he began law school. Something very significant happened in his life in July of that year, July 2nd, 1505. Luther went back home from university to spend some time with his family, and as he's traveling back to school, back to the university after visiting his family, he found himself caught in a thunderstorm. Not just a little thunderstorm, a big thunderstorm, such that he was surrounded by thunder and lightning, and one clap of thunder and one lightning bolt struck so close to him, it terrified him. Terrified him to the point of death. He was so fearful for his life, he thought for sure that he was going to die because of this storm that he was caught in. And so, because he was so fearful of death, and because he was so fearful of winding up in the hands of God, knowing that he was not yet righteous, knowing that he hadn't yet achieved what he thought was a level of righteousness to enable him to be accepted by God, Luther cried out for help from St. Anne. In the midst of this thunderstorm, in the midst of this lightning, he cried out for help from St. Anne to help him and committed that moment that if she would help him, he would commit himself to uh, being a monk, to serving the Lord the rest of his life in the Catholic tradition as, as a monk. And so he was delivered. He came through the thunderstorm. He, he lived. And he felt that that vow that he had made in the midst of that thunderstorm was a binding vow. It was a vow that he could not break. And so Luther 
then did exactly what he vowed to do. He left law school. He sold his books and 15 days later entered an Augustinian monastery in his hometown of Erfurt. His father was furious, absolutely incensed and enraged. This was a waste a waste of an education, a waste of a life. How, how could you do this, Martin? How, how could you give yourself over to this frivolous activity of becoming a monk? And yet, Luther was resolute about his decision, and he could not be dissuaded from what he had committed himself to do. And so here he is, about 23 years old. He is engaged now in the life of a monastery. And he dedicates himself, while he's there, to all the the practices of the the monastery, all that was required of him to be in the order of a monk. And what he was trying to do was essentially assuage his guilty conscience. He was trying to do whatever he could to, to placate his conscience, this guilt that just overwhelmed him over his sin and the fact that he he failed to meet God's standard of righteousness. This fear of God's wrath consumed him. He felt condemned. He felt that if he died, there was no way he could make it to heaven because he was just so far short of God's righteousness. So while in the monastery, he devoted himself to all the the requirements of being a monk. He fasted. He gave himself to long hours of prayer. He went on pilgrimages. He, He involved himself in confession for sometimes up to six hours a day. He indulged in the sacraments, penance. He even tried acts of self-punishment to try and get himself to to a point where he could be completely broken. He he would sleep on hard floors. He would go without sleep. He he would actually, in the cold of winter, in the dead of winter, sleep at, at night without a blanket in order to try and earn God's favor through these acts of of asceticism. He would even whip himself in an attempt to try and atone for his sins. Anything to to just uh, deal with his guilty conscience, anything to make himself acceptable to God. And he he wrote at one time, speaking of this dedication in which he engaged in 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 the monastery, he said, I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. He felt like he was a monk of all monks. He felt like he was doing the very thing that he needed to do in order to earn his salvation and make himself acceptable to God. And yet, through all of that, through all the years in the monastery of engaging in this kind of self-deprecation and and this kind of fastidious devotion to the order of being a monk, he found himself still hopeless. It was all fruitless. He, he, he did all these things, all the confessions, all the masses, all the absolutions, all the good works, all of this, and yet peace still eluded him. He couldn't find the satisfaction he was looking for. He couldn't find himself getting to a point where he could see that he could enter heaven and be in God's presence. He was still overcome by his sin, still weighed down with the guilt of his iniquity. In fact, At his first mass that he was required to perform, he said, quote, he felt utterly stupefied and terror-stricken at the thought of standing before a holy, almighty God. Luther was under torment. 
And if you've ever seen the movie, you can see it kind of played out on the screen before you, the torment that he was under trying to make himself acceptable to God, trying to, to do enough good works, trying to appease his guilty conscience, trying to figure out how can he escape God's wrath. <clears throat> well, fast forward a few years. The year is now 1507. And he has been a priest, he has ordained a priest in that year, and the next year in 1508, his superior, a man by the name of Johann von Staupitz, uh, asked him to come and be a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. looks like Wittenberg, but in the German language, the W is a V, so it's the University of Wittenberg. And he was invited to go and be a professor of theology there and to teach at this newfound university. And so he viewed this as a really great opportunity. He took it. And he went there and he began teaching uh, theology at this school. He became particularly fixated during that time on the phrase, the righteousness of God, found in the book of Romans, which providentially we have been working through. And providentially, just last Sunday, we dealt with that very phrase. And it was this phrase that Luther came to hate. And the more he studied Romans, particularly in the book of Galatians as well, the more he came to hate this phrase, the righteousness of God, because he saw in it not something that brought him hope, but something that brought him condemnation. He saw in that phrase, the righteousness of God, not justice that freed him from his sin, but punitive justice, condemning justice, justice that would ultimately result in him being condemned by God because he was thinking he had to be righteous in himself, righteous in his own qualities, righteous in his own behavior, righteous in his own conduct. And the more he tried, the more he realized how how far short he fell of that righteousness. And so every time he came to the study of the book of Romans and that phrase, the righteousness of God, he saw in it something that actually condemned him. I can't meet that standard. I'm not righteous. I'm guilty. Despite everything he did, he, he knew how far short he fell of that standard. And so he came to hate that phrase. It drove him to despair. And so out of frustration and out of this, this, the despair, he, he actually just plunged himself further and further and further into all of these works and all of these strict practices of the monastic life that he hoped would somehow bring him out of that and make him acceptable to God. And the more he did, the more he was discouraged. The more he pursued it, the more in despair he became. This is a man in torment. So five years later, in the year 1510, Luther made what he thought would be a life-changing pilgrimage to Rome, and it was, but not in the way he anticipated. Luther went to Rome thinking that perhaps there he, he could immerse himself into the religious fervor of Rome, and he could just throw himself into all of the religious practices in Rome, the, the center of the medieval Catholic church. And so what he did is he just thrust himself into all of the practices and all of the, the things that went into life in that place. He was hoping that maybe the cardinals could help him, the priests could help him. He was hoping that maybe if he paid homage to the shrines of the apostles and handled some of the relics and, and did what the, 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 the faithful did there and made confession there in that holy city, perhaps, maybe, just perhaps, he could find absolution from his sins. So he makes a trip there with a fellow monk. And as they approach the so-called holy city, he 
He raised his hands and said, Hail to thee, holy Rome, thrice holy for the blood of the martyrs shed there. Where's his hope? His hope is in that place. His hope is in the religious practices of that day. So he went in and and thrust himself into that. He visited the graves of the saints and he performed ritualistic acts of penance, and he even climbed stairs on his knees while praying, hoping that some of that would finally enable him to find favor before a holy God, and none of it helped. None of it helped. Instead of being a a joy to him and, and finding some of this weight of sin removed from his shoulders, he actually felt more oppressed and he saw all the corruption and all the greed and all the immorality that was taking place in Rome and he found himself increasingly dissatisfied with all of these works righteousness and all of these practices that he was throwing himself into and he felt himself increasingly burdened by sin and guilt Philip Schaff, the famous church historian, says this about Luther. He says, quote, He was shocked by the unbelief, the levity, and the immorality of the clergy. Money and luxurious living seemed to have replaced apostolic poverty and self-denial. He saw nothing but worldly splendor at the court of the Pope, and he heard of the fearful crimes of previous popes, which were hardly known and believed in Germany, but freely spoken of as undoubted facts in the fresh remembrance of all Romans." End quote. So instead of going to Rome and, and finding liberation for his soul that was so weighed down by sin, it became increasingly more difficult. He began to see the state church for what it was, a system of works righteousness. And he began to see himself more and more spiritually bankrupt. And so... Luther returns back to Germany, and he returns back to Germany just viewing his journey to Rome as basically a complete and utter disaster, still unable to find any help for his soul, still unable to find any release from his guilt, still unable to really deal with any of the the, the, the real spiritual issues of his heart, and yet God used that. God used that trip, that visit to Rome to really change him on his journey to true saving faith. It was just a couple years later, in the year 1513 or 1514, somewhere around there, that he was again lecturing through Psalms and through the book of Romans, and he comes to Romans 1.17, the passage we preached last Sunday, which says, in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And again, as Luther comes to that, that verse and that phrase, he, he sees in it the, the very things that he once hated. Again, he began to see just the, the weightiness of his sin and the, the, the condemnation of God and that righteousness. But as he continued to plumb the depths, and by the way, he's a man who models for us the diligent study of the word that should characterize all of us. He continued to to deal with this issue. He continued to penetrate the Word. He continued to, in his words, shake all of the branches of Scripture to, to pull from them what could be gleaned. And in his diligent study, he began to finally see that that phrase, the righteousness of God, is not punitive. It's not condemning. 
He began to see for the very first time that that phrase, the righteousness of God, describes the the kindness of God, the righteousness and the righteous perfections of God credited to the believer who responds in faith and receives as a result of that the righteousness of God credited to their account, which enables them to finally be free of sin and stand before a holy God clothed and robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? I mean, feel the weight of that. Imagine you're, you're, you're oppressed and you're weighed down with that conception of the understanding of the righteousness of God, that it's punitive and it's condemning. And as you begin to study the Scriptures, suddenly your eyes are opened and you begin to see the marvelous reality that the righteousness of God can also refer to the perfections of Jesus Christ credited to your account. Can you imagine the weight that would lift off your shoulders? That's exactly what happened. Luther described his transformation this way. He says, quote, At last, meditating day and night by the mercy of God, I gave heed to the context of the words, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Then I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. An entirely new side of the scriptures opened itself to me and I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the loathing with which before I had hated the term the righteousness of God. The man got saved. That that, that man came to true faith in Jesus Christ as he begins to, first, for the first time, truly understand justification by faith alone. Incredible. After a lifetime of guilt, after years of struggling to try and make himself acceptable to God, after a, a pilgrimage to Rome, which he thought would revolutionize his life, he finally came to understand the heart of the gospel the heart of justification by faith alone in Christ, and he began to see that it's entirely a work of God, that he could do absolutely nothing to receive that gift. It was all and entirely and wholly a work of God's grace. He was saved. Marvelous transformation from works righteousness to imputed righteousness. Here's the problem. He's still a monk. And he immediately found himself at odds with the teachings of Rome. This all came to a head in the year 1516 when a man by the name of Johann Tetzel arrived from Rome to sell indulgences. He was the papal commissioner of indulgences, and he was sent by Rome to go and basically make money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome And so he went on a a journey to to go and sell these indulgences. And the idea was that if you bought an indulgence, it would be a work which would then free your soul somewhat of its sin and would give you supposedly some confirmation and hope that your, your sins were now somewhat removed. And this particular indulgence was an indulgence that was sold to free souls from purgatory. You've heard the famous phrase before, this is what he would say every time he arrived in a city. He would say, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. 
This was nothing more than a way to make money for Rome. Luther's incensed. Luther is ticked. He's a man who was just saved a year or so before this. He was a man who's come face to face with the glory of the true gospel of justification by faith alone. And suddenly he sees this works righteousness teaching of Rome in his face and in his very city, in his very country, and he was livid. And it prompted him to sit down in his study and write 95 disagreements that he had with the church in Rome, now famously known as the 95 Theses, which he pounded into a door in the castle of Wittenberg on October 31, 1517. He had no plans of leaving the church. His goal was not to create a firestorm. His goal was not to to try and uh, make a public dispute. But what actually happened was the printing press had just been invented by Gutenberg a few years before that. And suddenly, this document, which he intended to just be a a way to voice his concerns about the teachings of Rome, suddenly is printed and and sent all around Europe. And, And a firestorm erupts. Something that Luther never anticipated and he never planned to do. And it actually got out of hand of people killing each other. And it got way out of control. And Luther tried to rein it back in. But by then, it had resulted in the beginnings of what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. And here we are, 500 years later, still benefiting from and still rejoicing in the recovery of the gospel and the heart of justification by faith alone. Luther rightly said that the church stands or falls on this doctrine. He says once a church compromises here, once a church fails to uphold justification by faith alone, it is a matter of time until they stray from the purity of the gospel and end up in either apostatizing or becoming liberal or both. So that just underscores how important this doctrine is. We've got to get this right, and we today in the evangelical church need to continue to fight for justification by faith alone, because you need to understand, and we'll get into this in the book of Romans, that there is still an attack on this doctrine today, and it's not coming from outside, it's coming from within the church. There are people today in seminaries who are still writing against this understanding of justification by faith alone, and it's coming from within our biblical Christian institutions And so today, there has to be a return to the Reformation as we defend this marvelous reality. Well, that's an introduction. I want to give you three points this morning. And I would like to, in the time that we have remaining, unpack for you the phrase, justification by faith alone. Three three points. Point number one, justification. Point number two, by faith alone. Point number three, alone. And I would like to take you to Philippians chapter three. There's so many places we could go to do this. Certainly the book of Romans would be the key place. The book of Galatians would also be another key place to do this. But I felt like we would just confine our attention this morning on one verse because it is in Philippians three, verse nine, where we find a defense of this marvelous doctrine, not by Luther, but by the apostle Paul. So this is not a new doctrine. This is not something that was invented 500 years ago. What the reformers did 
is they recovered the true biblical doctrine of justification. We want to look at that briefly this morning. So let me give you point number one, justification. We need to define the term again. I defined it for you last week. Let me define it for you once again. Justification is that instantaneous act whereby God declares the sinning believer righteous. I'll say it again. Justification is an instantaneous act whereby God declares the sinning believer righteous on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is a point-in-time act. It is not a process. In case you want to understand the distinguishing marks between justification and sanctification, sanctification is a process. Sanctification involves a lifetime of becoming more holy. Sanctification involves your cooperation, my cooperation. Sanctification is a, a process by which we do cooperate with God in becoming more holy. But justification is not that, and we can't confuse these two terms. Justification is an instantaneous act, a declaration by God, not by us, by God, a forensic declaration on the part of God that on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are counted perfect. That's what justification is. We're not counted perfect or righteous on our goodness, on our good works. It's not because God foresaw good works in us or because God foresaw faith in us. It is solely credited to our account on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ. So this is the marvelous and glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone. And it is what Paul addresses here, although he doesn't use the term justification, it is the very truth that Paul refers to here in Philippians 3, verse 9. Now start with me up in verse 3, and I want you to see that Paul is essentially describing what a true believer looks like. And I want you to see that in verse 3, if you want a good summary of what a Christian is, a Christian is those who are, verse 3, of the true circumcision, those who worship in the Spirit of God, those who glory in Jesus Christ, and thirdly, those who put no confidence in the flesh. You want to know who's saved? That's who's saved. A person is saved when they worship in the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ and they put no confidence in the flesh. And now what Paul does, starting in verse 4, is he begins to give his testimony. Now, if you've given your testimony before, you'll remember that any good testimony gives a description of what your life was like before Christ. It gives you a description of how you came to know Christ. And then it gives an account of how your life has changed as a result of coming to Christ. And that's exactly what Paul does here. In verses 4 through 6, he describes what his life was like before he came to Christ. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, I, uh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I am far more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is found in the law, I was found blameless. So Paul says here, wait, if anyone could put confidence in their works, in their righteousness, in their own flesh, I would have done it. I was from the right tribe in Israel. I was a Pharisee. In fact, I even persecuted the church. That's how much I was committed to these things. I was found blameless according to my keeping of the law. 
Paul says, I did everything right. Everything that would have been required of me by Judaism, I did it, and I did it perfectly. He says, if anything could have made me acceptable to God, that would have been it. And then verse 7. Look how it begins. But (laughs) that shows you that something was wrong. Something was not right about that system of works righteousness. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Oh, this is how he came to Christ. In a moment of God's work in, in Paul's heart, he was regenerated and he came to see at some point that the very things that he was hoping in, his confidence in his own works, in his own righteousness, in his own satisfaction of the law, he began to see how futile it was and he came to see how glorious Christ was so that he could ultimately describe all those things that he once thought were gain as loss. All those things that were once in his asset column, he said, were actually in his debit column. Such that he could describe those things in verse 8 as rubbish, scubalon, excrement, the stuff left on your plate after you've eaten everything and you scrape off into a garbage can. That's what those works righteousness were. And then he says this in verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And right there you have a description in verse 9 of justification by faith alone. That is a wonderful summary of justification. And he describes in that verse really two competing systems. He describes in verse 9 a system of works righteousness on the basis of human achievement, on the one hand, and on the other hand, he describes a basis of righteousness on the basis of imputation which comes from God through Christ. Do you see those? Look in verse 9 again. He says, I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. That's righteousness on the basis of human achievement. But instead, verse 9, he says, I receive the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's righteousness through divine accomplishment. And what you have in that verse is a summary of all the religions in the world and Christianity on the opposite side. What you have in that verse is a statement of the fact that all people in their natural flesh try to earn God's favor through their own righteous deeds, supposed righteous deeds, and their own good works, but it is a works righteousness derived from the law. And that's what every religion in the world teaches. You work, you work, you you do enough good things, you you allow hopefully God's grace to infuse those good works, and, and then God accepts you on the basis of your goodness, That's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity is a a religion of divine accomplishment. It is the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We're going to see this as we get into the book of Romans. But let me just remind you the danger of a, a 
attempting to earn God's favor on your own righteousness. Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Is that, can that be any clearer? Galatians 3.11 says, No one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 3.20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You cannot earn God's favor. You cannot do enough works to make yourself acceptable to God. It doesn't come by, by human achievement. What does save? Verse 9, it's the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Listen, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are saved not by your righteousness. You are saved only and solely by an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of you, a righteousness that is not your own, a righteousness that is actually given to you by another, by Jesus Christ, and it's credited to your account. So you don't have to earn your way to heaven through trying to use your filthy rags, as Isaiah called them in Isaiah 64, 6. It is only through the righteousness of Christ then credited to your account that you are able to be declared righteous. That is justification, friends. That is justification by the imputation of Christ to your account. You say, well, how can God do that? How how can God justify the ungodly? That's what it says in Romans 4 or 5. It says that God justifies the ungodly. And everything in us that screams for justice says, no way, how can God justify the ungodly? Well, you need two things. And I mentioned this briefly last week. I alluded to this last week, that you need two things to to be declared righteous. You, You need to, number one, have your guilt removed... And secondly, you need to be made perfect. And you have to have both of those elements to declare you righteous. You can't just have the first one. And frankly, most people in the church today think that the gospel is simply that God saves you from your sin. Yeah, that's true, but that's only half. That's not the full gospel Because God doesn't just take you from negative to zero and say, okay, you can finally come to heaven now because you're zero, right? Zeros don't get into heaven. You have to be perfect to get into heaven. You have to be completely righteous, no stain, no guilt, no sin whatsoever. And so in order to be declared righteous and enter heaven, you have to first have your guilt removed And then you have to be given a righteousness or a perfection. And both of those elements are necessary for you to be justified. And the glory of the gospel, listen carefully. The glory of the gospel is that Jesus does both of those for you. You don't just get half the deal. You don't just go from negative to zero and God says, well, you get to avoid hell. No, in order to go to heaven, you must also be declared perfect. And so Christ, in his sacrifice, gives you his perfections. And so this is the marvelous reality of justification by faith alone. Christ is both for us a sacrificial death and a perfect life. Get that? Christ, in his work for us on the cross, 
and in his life becomes for us both a sacrificial death and a perfect life. He is both for us a pardon and a perfection. And you must have both in order to be saved. You must have, first of all, your guilt removed. And that's what Christ did in the cross. He removed your guilt. He removed your sin. He removed your stain. He removed your your iniquities and your transgressions. He took the punishment that your sin deserved so that you can stand before God not guilty. That's the glory of the cross. That is the great transaction, the great exchange that takes place through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who made him who knew, knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When God saw Christ hanging on the cross, he treated him as if he were our sin. He punished him as if that was our sin there. He dealt out his wrath and his judgment upon Christ as if that was us, us there hanging And all of our sin was placed on him. But that's only half the story. You must understand the second half. The second half of the story of the gospel of justification by faith alone is you must also receive his righteousness. And so we would call the first element his passive obedience, that he willingly went to the cross and passively submitted himself to death but you also need the active obedience of Christ given to you. You also need his holy perfections. You also need his perfect life. You also need the fact that he didn't sin once. You also need his perfect law-keeping credited to us. And listen, that's why Jesus had to live for 33 and a half years upon this earth. That's why he didn't just come to earth and immediately go to the cross. Because if he had, there wouldn't be that second element, the positive element of his perfect life given to us. So that's why those 33 years and a half years of his life are so crucial. Because they're the only 33 and a half years that have ever been lived in perfection on this planet. No one else. Nobody else has lived perfectly, righteously, in perfect compliance with the law. Nobody has done that, but Christ has. And so those 33 and a half years of perfect law keeping, when you come to faith in Christ, are given to your account so that you can stand before Christ, now holy and blameless, and stand before the Lord in His presence without sin. And that's the gospel That's justification by faith alone. You have to have both of those. And as Luther began to study this and he began to see this emerge from the scriptures, he began to see the glory of the gospel emerge from its pages and he was no longer held under the captivity of the bondage of the righteousness of God. Instead, he began to see the glory of the righteousness of God credited to his account for all who come to him in faith. Luther found it. Paul wrote about it, and it's still what we hold to today. Point number two, by faith. How do you, re- how do you acquire this? How do you get into this? How, how does any sinner enable himself to get into the righteousness of Christ, the perfections of Christ? How in, in any way can we who are those who sin against God and rebel against Him, how can we acquire this righteousness? It's by faith. And you can see it in verse 9. 
Paul says, and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Twice, he says, it's through faith in Christ. It's on the basis of faith. This marvelous reality comes to you simply by faith. By believing in Christ, by by placing your faith and your trust in Him, by by receiving the gift that Christ offers to you, it's free justification received only by faith. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You must respond in faith. You must believe. You must respond, Paul says, in faith to Christ. Now, we know that that faith is also a gift. That faith is a gift. None of of us who have faith can say, well, I really conjured up enough faith and now I'm saved. No, the faith is a gift. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, not a work of yourself, not as a result of works, but by faith, which is a gift from God. And so the glorious truth of the gospel is even the faith that you express in receiving Christ as Savior is a gift to you which was purchased for you at Calvary. But you still must respond in faith. No one gets zapped. No one just gets immediately converted. You must respond in faith to these truths. And let me say it this way as well. It's not faith in faith that saves you. It's not faith in faith. So many people today are saying, oh, I have faith. Oh, I believe. I'm a believer. I have faith. In what? In who? Faith in faith doesn't save you. Faith alone doesn't save you. Look what the text says, verse 9. It's faith in Christ. Because only Christ can credit to your account the works that, that he performed in perfection and given to your account. So it's only faith in Christ that can save you. It's not faith in faith. And why is it by faith? Listen to Romans 4.16. Listen. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. It's in accordance with grace. If it's not by faith, it's not by grace. And if it's not by grace, it's your works. And if it's your works, it's not justification. So the reason we respond to faith in the gospel and faith in Christ is because it is faith that brings us in union with Christ. It is faith that unites us to Him. It is faith that that enables us to, to receive union with Christ. And the result of union with Christ is these very things that we've been talking about, which is all grace. It's not works. Listen, if any part of our justification is our doing, if we contribute on the basis, to the basis of our righteousness in any way, then there is no gospel and there is no grace and there is no justification. It's all grace. Received by faith in Christ. That is the heartbeat of the gospel and that is the heartbeat of the Reformation. That is the centerpiece of the Reformation. Number three, Alone. Justification by faith. Number three, alone. There's nothing else. There's absolutely nothing else that will save you. Read the verse again, verse 9. And may be found in him, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Is there anything else in there? Is there any works there? Is there any you doing penance? Is there any you going to church? Is there any? None of that's in there. It's alone. Christ alone. As the hymn writer said, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Friends, this is the gospel. Justification by faith alone. You say, why is this so important? Let me end with this. Here's why it's so important. Justification and the glory of Christ are held together. Justification and the glory of Christ are tied together. And a person's understanding of how God justifies a sinner by Christ's sacrifice determines the degree to which Christ is glorified. And so what's at stake in this dispute? It's not just us getting saved and going to heaven. What's at stake in this issue is the glory of Christ. And isn't that what life is about? And so if we're going to hold to a works righteousness We detract from and take from the glory of Christ because what we say in our hearts is, well, it's my works righteousness infused with with the goodness of Christ, and so together we kind of cooperate in bringing ourselves to heaven. That's not the gospel, and that detracts from the glory of Christ. It is only when we understand that our works are entirely excluded from justification that Christ is rightly glorified and Christ is rightly worshipped. And so if we're going to be a church that doesn't exalt us, that doesn't put confidence in our flesh, that doesn't draw attention to ourselves, if we're going to be a church that honestly and wholly and fully exalts Christ, you have to hold high the doctrine of justification by faith alone because it takes any confidence in our flesh away from ourselves and points to the only one who can save us, Christ. And that's why we sing songs about this. And can it be? Remember that line in there? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in, my, in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Why do we sing that? We sing that because of this truth. How about the solid rock? When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Before the throne of God above, remember the line, Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. Listen, if you don't hold to justification by faith alone, you can't sing those songs. And so justification and the glory of Christ are tied together, and when we understand that, there's no boasting. There's no boasting. Who do we boast in? We boast in Christ we boast in God whose righteousness is given to us. This is what 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 say. By His doing, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What are you boasting in? You can't study the Reformation and walk away and say, man, I'm, I'm really something. You can only study the Reformation and say, wow, Christ is something. This is sola fide. And this is why you must study the Reformation.
Father, we need this. Father, what, what this does is this points us away from ourselves. And it points us away from confidence in our flesh. And it points us to you, the only place that our hope and our justification can be found. Lord, I beg you, in a room this size, there are certainly some, perhaps, who are still placing some confidence in their flesh. I'm a good person. I've done enough good things. God will certainly allow me into heaven because I don't do all those bad things. Oh, God, show them the futility of that thinking. Show them the the spiritual bankruptcy that results by any hope in our own works righteousness. Point them away, Father, from themselves and point them to you and Christ and the gospel so that we may glory in Christ, so that we may honor you and exalt you in the way that you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.